We continue this morning in our sermon series looking at the prophet Elijah, and we are continuing that this morning by finishing up chapter 19, looking at just verses 19 through 21. If you'd like to follow along in your pew Bibles, that's found on page 355. The words will be on the screen behind me so you can follow along as I read from there as well. Again, if you'd like it to look it up in your pew Bibles, it's page number 355, or you can follow along. Uh, I'm going to change a lot of the pronouns into the, uh, the person it's referring to, so just so that we, it's a little easier to follow who we're talking about at different times. Again, beginning at verse 19 of chapter 19 of the book of 1 Kings, we read, And so Elijah departed from there, Mount Horeb, and found Elisha, the son of Shaphat, who was plowing with twelve yoke of oxen in front of him, and he was with the twelfth. Elijah passed by him and cast his cloak upon him. And Elisha left the oxen and ran after Elijah and said, Let me kiss my father and my mother, and then I will follow you. And Elijah said to him, Go back again, for what have I done to you? And Elisha returned from following him and took the yoke of oxen and sacrificed them and boiled their flesh with the yokes of the oxen and gave it to the people, and they ate. Then he arose and went after Elijah and assisted him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. This whole sermon series that I'm called In Need of a Prophet, we began by sort of explaining that just like it was back then, when we look at our world, our culture, the church, we can easily recognize all kinds of things happening and trends and movements that we struggle with, that disturb us, that are problematic. And we say, in those circumstances, who is going to be the voice that stands up? And truth be told, we're probably pretty good at identifying problems in our world. We always have been. It's not that hard to look around at, at what's happening and, and find things that disturb us, that we don't like, that are problematic, that are very much against God's word. That's never been an issue. The issue does become when we start to figure out, well, what are we supposed to do with it? How do we actually start to address these problems and these issues? You see, the easy part is to stand there and say, well, that's wrong, and that's not right, and that certainly is an issue. But what do we do when we hear the Holy Spirit quietly whispering into our lives, and maybe you're the person that I want to go and address that circumstance. Well, then all of a sudden we start to think about what that would mean. 
And we start to think about all kinds of problems and reasons why we can't be that person. We've, we've got too much on our plate right now. Uh, we're focused on work. And as soon as work lightens up and I have a little bit more time, well, then maybe I'll be able to address something. I don't think that I have those gifts and those talents. Or, or were I to pursue a solution to that problem, well, then I, I'd have to give up a, a whole lot of other things that are providing for my family and needs. And I can't sacrifice those things. And we come up with reason after reason. We are much more comfortable in the lives that we have established. And so when we hear that quiet whisper, maybe you're the one that needs to address this. Too often our answer is, I don't think so. And then we're stuck. We've identified the problem. But now here we are just waiting around for someone, someone who will step forward and say, I can address that. I know what we can do about this. And sadly, that puts us in a spot where oftentimes we look around and are easily able to identify all of the problems, but then we go on living our comfortable lives and nothing ever changes. Last week, when we started looking at chapter 19 of 1 Kings, we recall that uh, we started with that presupposition that after Mount Carmel, this great display of God's power and his presence, a clear demonstration that he alone was the true and living God, the only one worthy of the praise and adoration, the only one who would provide for and sustain his people that we assume that after this great event of Carmel and the rain coming, certainly that would change the lives of the Israelites. They would recognize the error of their ways, repent, and turn back to him in worship. And yet, as much as we hoped for that, as much as Elijah hoped for that to happen, it clearly didn't, especially in the hearts and the lives of people like Jezebel. And that was a difficult struggle for Elijah to live with, a, a struggle we can relate to. When we see great things happen in our culture and in our world, when we see things happen in the lives of those that we love, and we think for sure <coughs> this must be what will change them, and it never does. And we saw Elijah go then and taken on a journey to Mount, Hermit, Mount Horeb where God met with him. And there at the end of the message, we saw God encouraging him, reminding him that, yes, he had seen the rebellion of his people that would go punished, but that God was not done with his covenant with his people. He was not going to quit on all of those that had quit on him. He had more work. He had a plan. He had a future. The covenant would live on. That there was a remnant preserved that Elijah may not have been aware of, a small group, but a group nonetheless. And so he sent Elijah on a mission to go and to anoint two kings, one for Syria, an enemy of Israel at this time, a new king for Israel, and then another prophet who would replace him as the prophet to the people of Israel, continuing to bring God's word toward them and to challenge them. 
And that's where we pick up in our text for this morning. We see Elijah leaving Mount Horeb, and he's going on to follow through with this task that he has been given. And this task he begins when he finds the prophet, or he finds the person Elisha, the son of Shaphat. And when we meet Elisha, he is working as a farmer. He's in the very midst of plowing his fields with his yoke of oxen. Now, I have to take the word of the commentaries that suggest that when it mentions 12, oxen, 12 yoke of oxen in this text, that that suggests that Elisha was probably from a fairly wealthy and well-off family. And while I take their word for it, I believe it. I don't know about you if you've ever seen actual oxen. I've had an opportunity a few times in my life. There was a, a picture from the early 2000s I thought about putting up there, but it was, a, it was a bad picture. But these animals that I got to see were huge, and I was standing fairly near them. I'm, I'm six foot tall. The backs of these animals were at least five foot six, if not more. Huge animals. And for Elisha and his family to have 12 yoke of them, they were doing all right. At this point in their life, Elisha was well off. He was probably well respected because of his wealth in society. He wasn't looking for anything else to be encompassing him right now. But while he's in the very midst of his work, all of a sudden the famous prophet Elijah comes along. And as it says, he cast his cloak upon Elisha. Now, that might not be the anointing that we expected, but it basically is the exact same thing. In this act of putting the cloak on Elisha, this is a symbolic action of, of a change that is being suggested for Elisha. He's literally placing his mantle upon him. And that imagery of putting on clothes to be a changed person is one that we see in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. We put on the clothes of the Spirit. We put on the new self. We, we put on Christ in the way that we live. And, and so by casting his cloak upon Elisha, this is identifying him as calling him to become something completely new. And Elisha realizes that that's exactly what's happening here. He understands the importance of this action that Elijah just took and what is being asked of him. And so right away, he chases Elijah down, who apparently just kind of kept on walking. And he says to him, well, let me go kiss my father and my mother, and then I will follow you. Now, different commentaries talk about this uh, desire to go kiss his family in a couple of ways. Some suggest that Elisha is sort of acting like that disciple that approached Jesus in Luke chapter 9 that had a divided heart, that wanted to follow Jesus but wasn't quite ready to, to let go of his family connections. And so Jesus sort of rebukes him. And, and people see in Elisha someone doing the same thing. He's, he's hesitating. He's stalling. He's got a divided heart, which is why he wants to go back. But I was more convinced by those commentaries that suggest that it's not a divided heart, but it's a dedicated heart that Elisha is showing. He understands that as soon as he starts to take steps toward following after Elijah, his life will never be the same again. 
that he will be leaving his mom and his dad forever. He will be leaving his comfortable life. He will be walking away from everything he has ever known. And so this isn't a kiss of hesitation or delay, a divided heart. This is a kiss of goodbye. I'm leaving you for good. In taking that mantle and that cloak, he would be taking on a whole new life, one that would pull him away from everything he had ever known in the past. And so when he asked for that permission, Elijah gives him this somewhat of an odd response. Elijah says, go back again, for what have I done to you? And that seems confusing to us because, well, does Elijah want him to follow or, or does he not? Why is he being hesitant here? And the explanation that I appreciated most for that statement suggests that Elijah wasn't being flippant, but he wanted to make it clear that this wasn't Elijah calling Elisha, but this was God calling Elisha. This might have seemed to come from nowhere for Elisha. Just in the middle of his work, all of a sudden, Elijah throws this cloak on him. But this didn't come out of nowhere in God's plan. If you remember, I can look back to verse 16 of this same chapter. We knew that this was exactly what God had already figured out. This was his plan. And so Elijah now is just getting invited into it. And when Elijah says, what have I done to you? He's saying, this isn't me calling you. You've got to wrestle with God over this one. You have to recognize that this is God's voice in call, inviting you into this new role, and it is not just me passing on this mantle. And of all people, Elijah knew full well exactly what that was going to mean for Elisha. Ever since we met Elijah back in chapter 17, his whole life for the last several years has been lived on the run and in hiding. His life very much at risk at all times in this grand game of hide and seek that if he is ever found, he will be killed by Ahab or Jezebel. And Elisha not only is called to this task, but that's not even going to be his first job. He's going to be an assistant to Elijah from the very beginning. That's how verse 21 ends. And later on, we're going to follow Elisha, and we're going to find him described in 2 Kings 3.11, not as a great prophet, but first of all, as someone who poured water on the hands of Elijah which is just to highlight the fact that the call of Elisha that's he getting right now is, is not a glamorous call. It's not going to be easy. It certainly isn't going to give him a better, more blessed life than what he had already been living. In fact, he's going to be asked to sacrifice much of what he has enjoyed so far in his life in order to pursue this calling. But it was God calling him. And again, if Mount Carmel is supposed to be this big revelation of the great power and sovereignty of God, then that meant that he was the king of the universe. And he wasn't just there to defeat Baal, but he was there to reclaim the relationship that he was supposed to have with his covenant people. 
And so if God is that great king, if he is the one true God over all things, the only one that brings the rain, then when he calls and when he gives his word, it's not just a suggestion. It's not just an invitation or a prodding. It is the true claim, the true king staking a claim on your life. And Elisha saw that. Elisha recognized that. And because he knew that this was the word of God, he knew that there was only one way to respond. And so that's how he responds. Not only did he follow after Elijah, but he took the yoke of all of his oxen and he started a fire with it. And then he took those oxen and he had a great barbecue feast for his family and for his community. And as Elijah's putting on his cloak over Elisha was a symbolic action, this barbecue was just as much, if not more. I entitled this sermon, Burning Bridges. That's from that idiom, that, that statement that... Uh, comes from the idea that if you've got a bridge over a river or, or, or a ravine, that if you cross over that bridge and then you do something to destroy that bridge behind you, that means there's no way of going back. There's no return path available to you any longer. The path is gone, and so you can't go to where you were. You can only go forward. And that's exactly what we see happening with Elisha. In this call, he takes the tools of his trade and the animals that were providing for him, and he literally puts them to death. So there is no other option in his life. His only path is the path forward following the call of God. Try to imagine what that would be like. You go home and you burn down your milking barn. Don't get tempted. <clears throat> or instead of uh, moving on from your tractor business uh, and selling the implement, your tools, and getting the hundreds of thousand dollars that would provide a nice safety net just in case things go wrong, you destroy the equipment. Meaning it will never function again, it will never work, and there is no path backwards. There's only one way forward. That's a big step for Elisha, and that's exactly what's happened here. And once again, and I'm sorry, and once it is gone, it says that Elisha arose and went after Elijah and assisted him. And that's the kind of a response that we see is the response of a true disciple of the true king. We see in this response of someone who understands the implications of Mount Carmel and the fact that God was God alone. It is the response of someone who understands that God in his word is not offering suggestions or ideas, but that his word and all that belongs to him is his. And so when he speaks, our job is to wholeheartedly and enthusiastically respond with yes. Now, to be abundantly clear, Elisha's response, I'm sorry, Elisha's call was exactly that. Elisha's call. 
It was a unique call for him at that point in history to a particular task. And the point of this message is not in any way go home, destroy your livelihoods, and all of you become prophets. Especially in the Reformed faith, we have always taught that the call of God is a call for all people, and God does call people to be farmers. He calls them to be nurses, to be teachers, to be accountants or engineers or stay-at-home moms or dads, that those two are important calls that God puts on the lives of individuals. And so he does not call everyone to a life of, of prophecy, if you will. However, his response to the call of the Lord for his life is emblematic of what we see a lot of other true disciples in the Bible and how they respond. You go back to the patriarch Abraham, and when God's word came to Abraham, go and sacrifice that one son that you have, that you've longed for and prayed for and waited for. Abraham's answer was to bundle up the wood and to climb up the mountain with his son. When Moses was out tending to the sheep of his father-in-law and he was caught by a, the, his attention was caught by a bush that was on fire but never was fully enveloped or destroyed, he went over and he heard the voice of God saying, go and free my people from Egypt. And while Moses definitely was hesitant and he was afraid of that work and didn't think that it was God's call for him, he went. And he stood before the great Pharaoh and he said, let my people go. It's the call that we see in the disciples of the New Testament. That when Jesus said, come, follow me. They walked away from their fishing nets. They walked away from their tax collecting booths. And they gave up everything in order to follow after the rabbi Jesus. And if we're going to mention Jesus, we have to see in him the one whose whole entire life was a yes to every word of direction from the Father. That even when God the Father asked him to give his very life by allowing himself to be arrested, mocked, beaten, and spat upon, and then nailed to a cross, the cross of a criminal, while he too was a bit hesitant in his flesh, he said, not my will, but your will be done. And in moving forward and saying yes to God's call on his life, he was able to save the lives of sinners like you and like me. If God is God, that is how you respond to his word. If Christ gave his everything in order to save you, what do we have that we say, no, that's too much. I can't give that back in order to build your kingdom. But let's not pretend like that's an easy thing to do. That is hard. And it does take sacrifice. We would all much rather do what feels comfortable. 
We would rather do what has come easy to us. We would rather be able to provide well for our families and have a, a future where we know about our retirement plans all figured out and set before us. We would rather not risk ridicule or questions from the world around us. We would rather, rather continue to wait for someone else. But when those things are comfort, our security become more important, then nothing in our world changes. All the problems continue to exist and remain and exacerbate and grow as we wait because no someone shows up to change it. And to be clear, we need those someones. Think about the needs of our world and of our church, and let's start real easy. As a church, so many of us enjoy the fact that we, for many, many century, generations now, enjoy blended worship, and what a gift to have the organ where we can accompany the hymns of the past and continue to sing those songs passed down from one generation to the next. It truly is a gift. But no offense to our organists, they're not going to be here to be playing in 20, 25 years. So the question is, who's going to play this instrument? And how are the songs going to continue if we don't have someone now preparing and getting ready in order to do that and to carry that on into the future? A, a simple task, but a problem that we need someone to address. We easily identify all kinds of struggles in the church and we marvel that certain pastors are being let into pulpits and the way that they're teaching and leading their congregations is a shame because it's not closer to God's word, but it's further away from it. But my life is limited and I won't be able to stand in this pulpit forever. So where are our next preachers going to come from? Who is going to lead the church well? Who's going to take time to study God's word and, and to preserve it and present it in a way that the church can be built up, supported, and challenged to live lives in the way that we have been called? Last week, we mentioned and we celebrated the victory of Roe v. Wade. But the problem still exists that there are pregnancies that people just don't want and children that they're scared to death to welcome into their world. That problem doesn't go away with changing of the law. So what are we going to do and who is God calling to help these parents and these children to find the support that they need, not in pregnancy, but throughout their lives? There is homelessness all around us that we so often can turn blinders to, but when is God's voice going to say, and you can do something about that person? You may not be able to solve the whole issue, but you can do something about it. We live in an area where all kinds of immigrants are attracted to come to find that work. And while we struggle with that as a national problem, what can we, what can you do in a small way to help address the needs of those that feel compelled to come. And I could go on and on and on. And the question is, as much, again, as much as we identify problems in this world, are we not just seeing them, but are we listening for the voice of the Holy Spirit when he comes and he puts his mantle around you and says, and you are the one 
that I'm calling to go. And when we hear that voice, do we look back and we say, I like my comfortable life far too much. I don't have the time. It'd be asking too much to sacrifice. And, and we go back to that. Or do we say, this is God's calling on my life. And because it's his calling, I only do have one choice. And I'm going to walk away from what I know and uncomfortable. And I'm going to step into the unknown, the hard, and the difficult. Because God is calling me to address this issue. That's not an easy thing to do. But in servants like Elisha, Abraham, Moses, the disciples, and especially Jesus... Their answer was, when the Lord of the universe calls, your answer is yes. And again, each one of us has a very different call on our lives. Each one of us is being prodded in different directions. But our prayer is, my prayer is, that when you hear the voice of the God of Mount Carmel, when you hear the whisper of the Son of God who rose victorious from the grave to set you free from your sins and you recognize that you now belong to him. When you hear the prodding of the Holy Spirit, that our response would be, yes, Lord, where you lead, I will follow. Toward that end, let's have a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we start with that Truth, we are good at identifying problems. But we also confess that far too often, we, your children and your church, have tried to look for others to solve those problems. And we have been unwilling to let go of what is comfortable or what we know in order to pursue your call on our lives. First, Lord, I pray that we would hear your word and your voice that we would be listening to with open ears for how you are prodding and directing us to serve you. And just as importantly, I pray that when we hear your call, your word, no matter how old we are, no matter what we thought our life would look like, that our answer would be yes. Where you lead, we will follow. So take us, Lord. And use us as your servants to address the needs and the problems in this world while we await that day when you return to welcome us to glory. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.